Tandem Investment Advisors present Tandem Talk, a quarterly financial podcast hosted by Tandem President and Founder John Carew, with additional commentary provided by Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Tandem Talk, Episode 9, the first trademarked Tandem Talk. This is John Carew, the host, and I am joined today by a struggling vocals, Billy Little. Hello, everyone. <laughs> ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? And Jordan Watson. Hey, everyone. So we are going to pick a topic today that we think is front of mind for most of us and um, really has an impact on how we manage our portfolios right now. It has an impact on the volatility that we saw earlier and perhaps the lack of volatility we're seeing right now. Um, and that topic is the economy. Obviously, we're not macro-themed investors, but it certainly plays a role. So I'm just going to roll it out there into the middle of the table. And who wants to start talking about the economy or try to talk? I'll try to talk <laughs> about the economy. Um, I think it's pretty evident that economically things are slowing. Um, they've been slowing for months now. And the biggest thing that's a uh, confluence of factors with, with the Fed is, you know, the Fed is still tightening, economy's slowing. How do those mesh together? And that's where we are, I think, with the market today. I mean, when you look at the economy, leading economic indicators have been slowing for four months now. Real estate, uh, real estate starts, permits, they've all been slowing. Consumer confidence is ticking down every single month, although that... Maybe we see that tick up a little bit now that gas prices have been down for 50-some straight days. Yeah, um, and confidence now, was at all-time lows uh, in one of the most recent reports, right? Yeah. 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 All-time? All-time all lows. lows. Um, and so you've got, you've got ISM manufacturing that's been ticking down. Services is stabilized. But when you look at the subcomponents of manufacturing and services, employment has ticked below 50, which is contractionary. Final goods orders are also below 50. So you've got all these things, but then you've got jobs. And jobs was up, I think, half a million. I was in Scotland, so you got you to let me know. I, I think it was up half a million. Big jobs. Over, big jobs. Over board. Um, unemployment rate was three and a half, three 3.6%. Back at cycle lows. Exactly. So you've got these different factors going on in the economy where many of them are showing slow, uh, a slowing economy. Some still show some great strength. Um, and then you've got the overarching, the Fed. What it's are we really gonna a do? mixed bag, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You mentioned real estate. And I was just thinking that I know that real estate sales have slowed, that, that housing prices are actually, instead of being bidding wars, days on the market mm-hmm. is increasing and, and, and sellers are lowering their asking price. Yet it still feels to me that we are in a bit of a housing shortage Mm -hmm. um, because rents are still Mm -hmm. incredibly elevated. So, and as you said, unemployment is at a low. So are those things lagging? We're we're recessing and housing and rents and employment will catch up? I mean, how how do we view that? How do we read these tea leaves? Employment definitely is a lagging indicator, right? But I think, uh, one thing that's sort of interesting, Billy, you said the economy is slowing, and I, I don't disagree with you sort of broadly speaking, 
but John, like you said, they're pockets that seem like it's still doing well. And so I really think it depends sort of what you're talking about within the economy, sort of in terms of what's doing well and, and what's not. And I think that employment, which is what we're talking about, is really the sort of linchpin for all of that. And to me, if the labor market stays strong, then it doesn't have to be some deep recession or anything like that. It could be much more like 2015 or 2016 when the broader economy still slowed, but we didn't actually enter a recession because services were still so strong. You had a manufacturing recession, you had an earnings recession, but you didn't actually see the recession in the broader economy because services were still strong. Services today, still strong. People are spending on travel, restaurants, experiences. I tell you what, the cost of travel is crazy. Airports are crowded. Hotels are crowded. People don't care, though, do they? Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I obviously travel for a living, and uh, it's like never before. It's crazy. And the prices that you pay to travel are insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus here and, and give uh, credit or blame for this statement to anyone other than me. Um, in the second quarter, I went on record as saying that we were already in a recession. Um, was I wrong? Not technically. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Now the Bureau of... It depends who you yeah, ask. Yeah, some depends, people say yeah. technically you are, some people say technically you're not. It has not been officially stated as a recession. Technically, we are in a recession. Um, but yeah, I mean, indicators are slowing. Billy, to your point, you've seen labor, the labor market, while it's still strong, we saw job openings tick down, actually the worst month for uh, reduction in job openings. We lost 650,000 job openings um, since the pandemic lows. There's still 10.5 million job openings out there. There's a ton, and you could take the counter side of that argument and say, well, we added 500,000 jobs, so that's where that number is coming from there. Uh, but labor force participation is still at a very low rate, right? Quantify that. Quantify that, because Ben, you mentioned that in in your notes, your most recent notes from the trading desk when you were talking about participation. So we were up approaching seventy percent, I believe, pre-pandemic, mid sixties to high sixties, I think something like that. Uh, I wouldn't disagree with what you said. So where are we now? I think in the low sixties. I think we got as low as maybe sixty-two, and I think it's back up to sixty-four. But participation is still That's pretty still low. Yeah, participation participation's low. Labor productivity is still low. There, I, the dislocation in the labor market remains. Right, there's two times the amount of openings than there are people technically unemployed. So you still have this dislocation in the labor market. And meanwhile, you're seeing layoffs in the tech sector as well. Spotify or Shopify had a 10% cut in its labor force. We don't own Shopify, but uh, <laughs> Tesla, Coinbase, two other Tesla. Companies like so you're seeing- We don't own them either. You're mm-hmm. seeing layoffs, job openings are coming down. I think companies are sort of looking forward and they're pulling back listings because they want to reduce headcount going forward um, or just sort of limit the growth of it going forward. Going um, back to sort of pockets of the economy being hot and parts being cold, it has been pretty clear, I feel like through earnings season that Companies that have exposure to tech companies uh, are definitely feeling that softness within tech. And so I don't know that every single portion, every single part of the economy is feeling that softness, but it's definitely present in tech, right? Yeah, it's a conversation we had. You're almost seeing the economy get back to equilibrium, right? 
e-commerce and technology really took off. It was really accelerated by the pandemic. You saw this crazy spike above long-term trend growth. And now you're seeing that come back down to equilibrium. And on the other side, when we shut the economy down, no one was traveling. So the growth there went really below trend. Mm -hmm. And now you're seeing that approach equilibrium. So we're sort of, the economy is sort of reverting to its- That's an interesting analogy. It's, it's like a pendulum swinging back and forth, right? It and now it's swinging too far back in the other yeah, direction. Yeah, it's overshooting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I don't know if anybody at this table uh, reads the weekend Wall Street Journal, but there was an interesting piece. This is not news. This was commentary. Um, not opinion commentary, but they were tracking, they were interviewing people who had left the workforce, who quit their jobs, or or perhaps and some of the people I think were job shoppers, right? Serial job changers. The point of the story was people 22 to 35, um, an, an unusually large percentage of them had changed jobs within the last two years or plan to change jobs within the next two years. And they were just interviewing some of those people about how they felt about it now. And there was a lot of th this article, which is anecdotal, it's not universally so. This article gave the uh, impression of there was a lot of remorse in those who um, quit. And so, you know, I hear this conversation regularly, where did all the workers go, right? Well. We know where they went. They left the labor force. We used to have over two thirds, I'm going to claim, of the population participated in the labor force and now we're, we're below that number. So they just left the labor force. But some portion of that might be remorseful. So does that give us reason for optimism or does this is this just a sucky situation? You know, ADP actually talked about that on their earnings call a little bit. How they see this sort of more secular tailwind, uh, and now their business is dependent upon labor, so they're going to see that uh, very positively. But um, there's sort of this there could be this tailwind to the economy because of the way the labor situation is right now. If you have people returning to work and you see that participation rate tick higher, uh, you will see strength in the economy. And some people would say, well, that's just going to lead to more inflation because you have more people making more money and that's going to spend more. And in that sense, sure, you will have people making more money. But the issue with inflation sort of seems different. That was a supply shock. As much as it was also demand-driven, there's a ton of supply issues going on. The supply issues are now getting fixed, right? And so I think that if you see are that... They? But you I, also I, I do really have wage, know. I mean, you have wages up 5 6% in the last report. Yeah, which is traditional inflation. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. yeah, I'm not saying that that's not there. I'm just saying that I think... But it is newer. Yes. It, it is that's new, newer, it's newer entry into the arena, right? Yeah, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that the... I think that... The, I don't... I hate the word soft landing, but it's what keeps coming to the tip of my tongue. I think something like that could happen if you see the participation rate tick up and you see inflation continue to trend in the right direction. Now, I'm not out here celebrating 8.5% year-over-year CPI print. I don't think that's great news. But if that continues to come down and you see the participation rate tick up, I think that this thing could sort of work itself out naturally over time in a very positive manner. That would be awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to think that that is a 
possibility. I don't know if it's a probability, <laughs> but I, I, I do think it's a possibility, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, things are evolving, and, and it looks like this could sort of resolve itself without too much ugliness. I think the real unknown is how far the Federal Reserve goes, right? right. Because one disturbing trend that we're seeing almost overnight, I mean, this really came out of nowhere, in my opinion, is the amount of household debt, credit mm-hmm. card debt specifically, yeah. um, how dramatically it's rising. Revolving credit is up yeah, through the roof. Fastest, yeah. fastest growth in consumer credit since 2011. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I think lowest personal savings rate since 2009, right? So inflation's eating into savings and people are taking out credit cards. I think last pod or two pods ago, we talked about the JP Morgan data about new credit card issuance. So... So jobs will be the linchpin of it all. Yeah. You, know, yeah, you yeah. start you start losing jobs, yeah. you've still got a credit card to pay. You know, this is this is just um neither here nor there, but I don't know, maybe ten years ago I wrote a piece in the Tandem Report about um the incredible correlation between the unemployment rate and the economy and the market. And when things are perfect, <laughs> like three and a half percent unemployment, <laughs> there's just nowhere to go to the better side of that, right? Yeah. You, you know, the ideal time to invest, we, we know this with the benefit of hindsight, was when the unemployment rate was at 10%, right? Yeah. At three and a half. I'm not saying don't be invested. We're not about timing anything here. But I am just sort of, hypothesizing that three and a half percent is a great unemployment number how does it get better than that yeah and how far will the fed continue to go if you see weakness in the labor market if unemployment ticks up above four percent or approaches four and a half how far are they willing to go to continue to tame inflation you know jordan i think that's a pretty interesting point because i feel like really over the past week uh you've seen the fed still really talking about their game moving forward. I mean, I think that you've seen multiple people on the tape talking about still going 75 basis points in September, whereas the market is not buying that at all. And so you sort of have this game of chicken right now between the Fed and the market, where the market says the Fed pivot is is already basically priced in. Yeah. And you're seeing, I hate this term again, but you're seeing riskier assets mm-hmm. start to really move higher on that Fed on the idea of a Fed pivot. I guess the listeners can't see me do air quotes around that. but uh, They have the mental image now, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's happened pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I went away from Scotland. We were in a bear market. Yeah. And, and we were expecting market. 4% uh, terminal Fed funds rate. Maybe we just need to send you and back over there. I come back, and we're in a bull market. <laughs> is your voice still over there? It is still over there. I'm still trying to find it. Apparently, we're in a, a bull market now Yeah. from several news outlets uh, now proclaiming. But yeah. the Fed um, is really, really talking that down. I mean, Kashkari said this week that there is no chance that they cut next year. And the market already thinks that they're going to be cutting next year. And so it's, yeah, I tend to believe the market, I think, over the Fed. <laughs> but it's Agreed. just interesting. I think the, uh, the Fed has to, they, they have to keep talking tough. I yeah. mean, you can't stop at 8.5 CPI and our job is done. No, 8.5% CPI in March was like the end of the world. And now oh, it's yeah. being yeah. celebrated. Two reports yeah. ago. Yeah. The market is pricing <laughs> this sort of peak inflation narrative recently with the 0% month over month inflation. It is 8.5% year over year, right? Uh, most of that attributed to 
gas prices, right? I think prices at the pump are down a dollar. Like you mentioned, 50 straight days of declines. So, and the PPI print today came in a lot weaker than expected. That's noticeably rolling over. John, to your point earlier, housing is starting to slow. New listings are really plummeting. Sellers realize that things are sitting on the market. People are cutting prices, so houses aren't going up uh, that's, as much. You're right. That's why CPI is coming down. But there's a lot of other measures out there. Yeah. Uh, like I think the Cle- I think it's Cleveland. The Cleveland Fed puts out a number where they strip out basically the outliers. They they it's almost another way to look at core CPI. That thing is at all-time highs. Mm-hmm. Um, the Atlanta Fed looks at sticky prices. So the part of the economy that are the stickiest and least likely to change moving forward, that's really, really high right, right now. And so you're seeing these things come down, but at its core, there's still a problem there. And so right. the headline tells a very different story. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It was interesting because the Fed always looks at core PCE, right? Personal consumption. Mm-hmm expenditures, um, which strips out the non, you know, f- uh, food and energy, right? Mm-hmm. What was interesting, a couple of press conferences ago, though, Jay Powell basically said that they were just going to, they were going to continue pressing on the gas at the headline CPI. Whatever headline CPI does, that's what they were going to focus on. Just because that's what's reported on, on the nightly news, that's mm-hmm. what the consumer yeah. looks at and pays attention to, Right. You know what strikes me as being unfortunate about this? Obviously, the Fed can can rein in inflation by raising rates to the point where economic activity grinds to a halt, right? I mean, that's the end game. But it's really penalizing um, those that were not the cause of this. I mean, in the past, we've had wage, wage gain inflation. Um, we've had too much spending through credit um, where the consumer was just pulling forward um, lots of purchasing. Uh, And that wasn't the case this go-round, right? The consumer really did have a good balance sheet after the financial crisis. Savings rates increased, right? Credit card debt decreased, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And so now... We have inflation that the consumer didn't cause. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. We, we have rising rates to punish the consumer who is now having to borrow um, when it's more expensive to do so. We're going we're gonna to see young home buyers who probably bought a, a, a variable rate product when they, when they purchased their home. You know, maybe it was a three-year arm, five-year arm, 10-year arm. It doesn't matter. This boom's been going on for a while at zero interest rates. Mm-hmm. You're going to see people get hit with mortgage payments that they never contemplated, right? So so I realize I'm painting a really bleak picture, and I don't mean to be. I'm a happy person. But 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 how does that sort of play out if if rising interest rates are the tool that we use to combat this. I think I think that's a, a really good point. The one thing that I sort of really want to drive home is is what you said, because we were talking about credit earlier, and you said that the consumer is having to borrow now. And I think that that's exactly right. That's why you're starting to see credit tick up, because inflation has been around long enough to where now they need to borrow. You listen to Visa and MasterCard on their earnings, and they're like, everything's great. Everybody's spending money. It's like, well, yeah, of course they are. You have to spend money. 
But what's changing is the shift. And we talked about that in the last tandem talk. We talked about how Walmart really shook things up in May because they were talking about trade downs. McDonald's. McDonald's. Down. Yeah, you've seen trade downs at McDonald's. at and is saying that their customers are starting to pay late. Even within yeah. our own portfolio, O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. There's a complete difference at O'Reilly between their do-it-for-me customers mm-hmm. who are going to professionals to have their cars fixed and do-it-yourself. And those are two different income groups, those customer bases. And one is not doing well. The do-it-yourself is not doing well, whereas the do-it-for-me is doing completely fine and so, is taking on the price so increases. So let, let me plug your, your bi-weekly column. Notes from the trading desk. Shamelessly plug. If you haven't read it, <laughs> go read it. Um, you talked about that, and you gave it a name. You called it the K-shaped economy. Yes. You want to you just, for those who haven't had the wisdom to read your column, <laughs> do you want to just sort of talk about the K-shaped yeah, so I economy? Think, I think the idea, at least it was new to me, the K-shaped recovery was coming out of COVID, where you saw those that were in industries that were unaffected by COVID, um, which at the time seemed to be more white-collar jobs, uh, seemed to be unaffected. By COVID and we're recovering quite well. But those that were maybe either more service oriented or more blue collar jobs that were getting shut down due to COVID, you saw that portion of the economy really struggle. So if you can sort of visualize what a K looks like with one arm going higher and one arm going lower, that's the idea behind the recovery from COVID. That idea sort of went away. I haven't really heard it be talked about, but I think it's sort of back where you're seeing the affluent, that's what sort of, that's how Visa and MasterCard defined it. The affluent spender is going on vacation. They're flying everywhere. They're going to Disney World and all of the other parks and all of those places and they're spending. But the lower income portion of the economy is just spending way more on food and on housing. And so they're spending just as much as they ever were because they have to, but their makeup has changed Remarkably, And it's this interesting sort of breakdown in the economy. It's not like your traditional recession or your traditional slowdown. You're seeing the trade downs. That's traditional. But you're still seeing people fill up Disney World. That's not your traditional yeah, recession. Yeah, that's crazy. And so it's just sort of different. But you know what? That's an interesting point. And that's, that's in all likelihood, where a lot of the increased um, credit card debt is coming from. If you were getting by just fine paying $150 a month on your credit card... But now to fill up your tank, it costs twice as much as it did a year ago. You're budgeting still the $150 to pay to your credit card, but the balance is growing. It's not right. shrinking now, right? right. That's how that right. works. Right. Yep. It, it is wild how much the price at the pump actually feeds through to the broader economy, economy and impacts everything from inflation expectations to uh, political polling. I mean, you see price at the pump is basically inversely related to approval ratings. But on the inflation forecast in the New York Fed survey last month, I think inflation expectations five years out fell at one of their fastest rates, which pretty much matches a dollar reduction in price at the pump, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's interesting how one thing, the price that somebody pays for a gallon of gas can feed through and ultimately... When you look at it, it's, yeah. it's inversely related to consumer confidence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's also something that we are all aware of. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in his debate with Bill Clinton, George 
H.W. Bush was famously asked if he could uh, identify or tell how much a, a loaf of bread cost, and he couldn't, and, and it was a painful political moment for him. But I think we all have some general idea of what gas costs. And because of that, you are, I am witnessing people actually take advantage of that. Well, I can't do it for what I used to be able to do it for because it cost me more to put gas in my tank or it cost me more to have it shipped because the, the shipper is charging me. I mean, it's now an excuse that we all accept. Mm-hmm. To pay a higher price for something, right? They're not going to lower that price on you yeah, either. No, no, no. That fuel surcharge, yeah. it's there. It's, it's there for good. So I would like to just pivot if we can, unless somebody wants to continue to talk about this. So, um, you know, we've said this before, and it, it bears repeating. Uncertainty equals opportunity from our perspective as as investors, right? So in the depths of COVID, and I'm not comparing this economy to the the depths of COVID, we had absolutely no idea what the future might look like. Billy, you you talked about that. In fact, I think you were the first person I ever heard mention stagflation as a possible outcome on the other side of COVID. We are now hearing that word regularly. Readers of your piece, Observations, would would know that, so go read it, Observations. But you really were on the forefront of that. He nailed it. He did nail it. It was remarkable. <laughs> uh, not remarkable because we know him, but yeah. it, he nailed it. And not remarkable because he's sitting right next to us yeah. and we don't want him to get the wrong idea, but it was pretty darn good. It was really good. But in that moment of maximum uncertainty created the greatest opportunity that we have seen since the financial crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Now, as we rolled into 2022, I'm not comparing the level of uncertainty, but there was a lot of uncertainty. We were seeing inflation spike at dramatic rates. I mean, mm-hmm. I've lived a long time. I've never seen inflation increase that quickly. We, we saw the war, you know, Russia invade Ukraine. and. All sorts of supply chain issues. All sorts of supply chain issues were beginning to manifest themselves. And the market reacted to that uncertainty negatively. And it created a lot of opportunity for us in our portfolio. I'd I'd like you guys to take a minute to sort of quantify that. But it feels like the perception is that there's less uncertainty. Billy said he... He left a a bear market to come home to a bull market. So how is all of this playing out in our companies? How is it impacting our companies? How has it impacted our role as portfolio managers over, say, the last nine months? You're right, John. Over over the past nine months, we've had a ton of opportunity um, really to put cash to work, to uh, buy some new names, add to existing names. The end of Q3 last year, so let's say nine months ago, we were large cap core was close to 30%. Mid cap was close to 30%, maybe a little bit higher. Equity was closer to 18, 19%. Um, Today, those cash levels are large cap core closer to 12, 13%. Mid cap around 15, 16%, and equity around 4 or 5%. And those numbers are actually. They've actually ticked higher 
since some of the uncertainty went away, right? Yeah, we've had a, a, a little bit of opportunity to to take some money off the table and some of our positions that um, have snapped back uh, in this most recent uh, in this most most recent rally. Um, but it has this, in the in the past, and we've talked about it before. How you know it doesn't matter what the S and P is doing or the Dow or the Nasdaq. I mean, we were buying one name in specifically Jack Henry. We we're buying that in November of last year, when markets were actually at near all time highs. But at that time, it was presenting an opportunity for us in that specific name. Jack Henry is now what up forty percent or close to forty percent since last November, um, and the market compared to the market, markets down probably fifteen percent, ten fifteen percent. So, um, you know, we've had opportunities regardless of whatever the market is doing. I think hopefully what what some folks that have been able that have been with Tandem for a while now have have hopefully seen and hopefully have noticed is that we always talk about buying low and selling high. And those are two separate things. Last year, you saw valuations were really high. The market felt really good. I think people were happy with where the market was last year, but risk was high. We were selling high. And Billy, we got to those cash levels that you were talking about earlier. Then a lot of uncertainty, John, as you talked about, came into the market. Valuations came down and we were able to buy low, completely separate from the idea of selling high. They're, they're very separate things. And we've been able to add 11 new names mm-hmm. to large cap core, a couple of other new names to equity and mid cap as well, to where for the better part of the past four or five years, large cap core has been around 30 names, maybe as low as we got as low as 20, mm-hmm. 29, mm-hmm. 29, but usually around maybe 32, 33. Today it's at 38. Uh, equities into the low 40s. Uh, Midcap probably has the most names that it's had in quite some time. Quite some time. Uh, and so the portfolio has gotten to be in this very good position in terms of composition of the portfolio because of this uncertainty, John, to your point. It does create opportunity. It scares people away. Um, it makes them sellers, and that creates opportunity for us, right? Right. And, and it's not that we're timing anything. This is all driven one company at a time right but but sometimes you just find yourself in a world where there are more things to buy than sell and so cash levels will will naturally go down um but you know i just want to talk about risk kind of briefly And, and, and that is ben you you alluded to this i'm just going to come out and say it last year 2021 it felt safe because markets were hitting all-time highs, right? Mm-hmm. And people perceived there to be less risk. Yet we know now, with the benefit of hindsight, that the riskiest the NASDAQ has ever been was in November of 2021. The riskiest the S&P 500 has ever been was January the 4th of 2022. Why? Those were their last all-time highs. They've only gone down mm-hmm. since then, right? So risk was elevated when people perceived there to be far less risk. From our perspective, from the way we come at this, when valuations are falling, we perceive there to be less risk, even though the general marketplace would seem to perceive risk to be rising, right? And 
And now we find ourselves in a world where the general impression is there is less uncertainty, um, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave us? It probably leads us to the next CPI report. <laughs> <laughs> and probably to Jackson Hole. And yeah. Then the September Fed meeting. Uh, oh, I thought you were talking about my trip next week. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think our listeners care about you about you being in Jackson Hole next week playing uh, playing in a member guest. But no, I I think that uh, the market is probably in a sweet spot right now because the Fed is uh, sort of in recess for a while, and that should be good for markets for a stretch. Um, but ultimately, all of the things that were driving markets lower in the first half haven't really changed. Sure, inflation just ticked lower. That's good news. But supply chain issues are still around. They have improved, but they're still around. You now have a new player in terms of headwinds with the dollar. I think I read the other day that 15% higher on the dollar index knocks off something like 2% of the sales off off of the S&P 500. Last few weeks, the dollar has stopped going higher, but it's still higher and you're already seeing companies warn on their 2023 numbers about what the dollar is doing as they're getting orders in now that will feed through 2023. And so it's there's still headwinds in place, I think is. Yeah, and we're coming up in the next two weeks will be the retail reports, will be the consumer, right. consumer um, earnings reports. Those will be extremely important mm-hmm. to see where the consumer is. Up until now, it's been financials, industrial, every other sector but consumer. Yeah, that's a good point, Billy. So... I think it's time to wrap this thing up. Um, if anybody has any final uh, thoughts, that's great. Um, but I have just this thought to share as I sit here and listen. And by the way, listener, um, just so you know, the four of us are sitting around a round table with a recording device. This is completely unscripted. Um, we're just having a conversation that you get to, or have to, however you choose to phrase it, uh, eavesdrop on. Um, and this is fun for us to do, but, but in listening to the three of you talk, it occurs to me that for the first time in a very long time, we are talking about fundamental things, the economy. We did not once discuss policy, politics, midterms, pandemics. We talked about economics. It was a fun, it was a fun <laughs> conversation. Back to normal, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Whatever normal is. Yeah. Any any final thoughts? No? no not for me. No. We're good? Well, this was a fun conversation. And I would like to thank you, listener, if you've made it this far, for hanging with us. Um, this is episode nine of Tandem Talk. It truly is trademarked now. Um, Elaine is confirming that. So that's exciting. You can find us on our website, You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Google Podcasts. Um, We're out there. And we hope you enjoy this half as much as as we enjoy bringing it to you. It it really is fun. Uh, Again, this is John Carew. I'd like to thank the investment team of Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. I'd like to thank our producer, audio, and sound engineer, Margaret White. Our producer and director, who is also our Director of Communications, Elaine Natoli. Can't believe we've, we've made it through nine of these. This has been great fun and a, and a brilliant idea that you had, Elaine. I'd like to thank our co-producer, Julia Hoffman, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening. So until next time, be well. 
Tandem Talk is produced by Margaret White, directed by Elaine Natoli, with music written and performed by Lauren Crepanzano. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors, Inc. does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.